We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna Shotgun for Brady. Five receivers set. Brady steps up. Brady pulls the trigger. End zone. Touchdown. He hooks up with Danny Amendola. And the Patriots go in front from the gun. Brady. Rainbow. Over the shoulder grab. Chris Hogan. Touchdown. Tom Brady delivers a strike to the former Bill. 53 yards. Brady on a second and six for New England. Steps up in the pocket, throws it downfield. Oh, separation, Gronkowski! He's gone! Touchdown, Patriots! Back in western New York, Rob Gronkowski with a big spike. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Power Report. I'm Drew Gear. that's Chris Krueger, and I don't know who the fuck did the intro, so I can't talk about it. That was Ian Eagle from CBS Sports. Tom Brady throwing all over the Bills as he's done all of the time. So the Bills hype wagon slammed into a brick wall last week. And this week, the wreckage just burned. It just burst into flames. And there's people running, screaming. It's like Apocalypse Now over here in Buffalo. If you spend any time on social media, I'm sure you've seen it already. I mean, this season has been an emotional roller coaster for Bills fans. Today, the Bills sit in eighth place, four and four, with the Monday Night Football game in hostile territory. And if we lose, we're guaranteed third place in the division. Hey, what's not to love about it? (laughs) Jesus Christ. Let's start off with the Bills news update. Now, to help us, you know, kind of get through the podcast and this first half of things, we decided here at the Rock Power Report that we needed to bring in, you know, some outside perspective. Maybe, you know, maybe a little bit of diversity. What in the hell's diversity? <clears throat> well, I, I could be wrong, 
But I believe uh, diversity is an old, old wooden ship that was used during the Civil War era. <laughs> Guys, here with us tonight in studio is Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Celeste Elbon. Celeste, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good hanging out with you guys. <laughs> yeah, for somebody that doesn't drink and has seen the massacre of beers that we've pounded so far tonight. You guys tonight. drink enough for me. Yeah, well, we do all right. We do all right. So we're going to start the news off with Aaron Williams. You know, he's a guy that you, Celeste, are a huge fan of. Now, and he probably knows you personally. That's what, At least that's what you make it seem. When he came by at the game Sunday and was hitting hands, he was like, oh, hey, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact is, is Aaron Williams has been placed in IR for the neck injury that he sustained after the hit by Jarvis Landry in the Miami Dolphins game. I mean, I, I don't know what kind of treatment that he's going to need, or and there's been no disclosure as far as the exact nature of his injury. But I, gotta, I, I have to assume that it's significant if it's going to force him to the IR for a second straight year. I heard a rumor that he had, that? Numbness he had numbness in his arm. Mm-hmm. I don't know Christ. if it's true or not, but... Well, what I know is that his father already publicly stated that this offseason, Aaron is going to have to do some hard thinking about his future, which may include retiring from football altogether. You know? It's his second significant neck injury. Mm-hmm. I mean... Whaley came out, and Doug Whaley made some statements about, oh, yeah, we'd love to have Aaron Williams back, and, you know, maybe if things fall the right way. Things aren't falling the right way. <laughs> he would return for, like, the last game. That doesn't uh, even make sense. Well, what, we only get one off of IR, mm-hmm. right? Man. So Sammy Watkins leads the way in that category. I'll tell you this. I honestly, and I hate to say this, and I say this with a heavy heart, but I feel like I've seen Aaron Williams play his last game in a Bills uniform. Yeah. It's I fucking depressing. Yeah, it's I agree very with sad. you. I agree with you. I mean, it's going to be now on our backups, Robert Blaine, Jonathan Meeks, and Duke Williams to pick up, try to find a way to pick up the slack out there for the remainder of the season on the field. But I have no idea who is going to fill that void in the locker room. Because Aaron Williams is a guy who's been here. I think he'll stay, though. I think I've tried asking him on Twitter, but he was out on the sidelines Sunday, so mm-hmm. I think he'd stay. He'd, he'd want to be here. I hope so. I mean, we can, we can only hope so. And then you want to get into some other news, and I've got something of an editorial here for you. Jarvis Landry announced today that he's going to be appealing what has been agreed upon by everyone who knows shit about football. Well, Mike Pereira said that's a football play. Mike Pereira can suck my balls. Okay, the fact is that everyone who knows football can agree that that's a dirty hit. Okay, the hit that Aaron Williams took was filthy. I always thought a football play was uh, leaving your feet launching at somebody's head. Yeah. So, and then throughout the rest of the interview in which he announced that he'll be appealing this, his comments just seemed to underline the fact that regardless of you know this bullshit attempt. To act remorseful, you know, where he walks over and he pats Aaron Williams on the ass. He doesn't fucking mean it. You want to know how I know? He doesn't give a shit about the career that he just ended because he's like, oh, well, it's not fair that I get fined a quarter of $100,000. 
because I might have just ended someone else's ability to earn a livelihood in this league. $24,000, and Richie Incognito throws the helmet, gets fined 9000 He's like, I'll do it again. I'll, yeah. pay, I'll pay the $10,000. Yeah. The fact is, is he legitimately doesn't feel like he did anything wrong. Okay. Now, I want to bring something else up, kind of in the same vein. Cam Newton has recently called out the NFL for, for just failing to protect its players. A lot of uh, national media pundits are calling him a whiner. Okay, uh, you can call my, him a whiner. My but... favorite, Clay Travis, called him a whiner and cowherd. Well, I don't give a shit who out there thinks he's a whiner. You know, a lot of them, you know, he thinks that because he runs, he's not afforded those same protections that other players get. And he might be right. I mean, let's take a look at this. I broke it down in stats. Here are the hits sustained by quarterbacks since 2011, according to ESPN. Cam Newton, in 82 games, has 831 hits. That's 10 per game. He's averaging more than 10 hits per game. The next closest person to him is Russell Wilson, who has 533 hits in 68 games. And then you've got Alex Smith coming up in third with 463 for 76 games. I mean, the fact is, is Cam Newton's getting hit every well, you know, one out of ten plays. Cam Newton's getting hit. Well, the in your top three right there, the first two are running quarterbacks. Okay, but but so okay okay so let's take a look at this. According to the CharlotteObserver.com, different types of calls. Roughing the passer calls for Cam Newton since 2011. Since 2011 to date, he's had 23 of them. Doesn't Tom Brady get those 23 games? Oh, Tom Brady gets five of them a game. It's freaking ridiculous. In his first two seasons, though, he got 14 of those 23. 14 of those 23 came in his first two seasons. In the last three seasons, he's only had nine. And in 2015, he got zero. He got zero roughing the passer calls last season. So, I, Wasn't I mean, it's, it's, it's blatantly obvious. If anybody out there watched week one of the NFL, that guy, there was multiple guys launching themselves at Cam Newton, and there was no flags coming for roughing the passer. Was Why? It, wasn't it last year that uh, he got the... the Quote, unquote, you're too young to get that call from Hockey League? Oh, yeah, and Hockey League flat out told him he was too young to get a rough from the passer call. The fact is is that he's taking more contact than anybody else, and a lot of it's not clean. Okay, I think this is a situation where officials are taking the stance that because he's a running quarterback, he's going to take more contact, and they just stop treating individual hits on a case-by-case basis and just lump them together as, well, that's part of the game. That's part of the way he plays. I think it's flat out wrong. It's bullshit. Okay? Then you look at Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown was viciously knocked unconscious by a hit from Vontez Perfect. What are you talking about? He's a clean player. In that Cincinnati-Pittsburgh game. And it happened on national television in the playoffs. It eliminated one of the best players in the NFL from the game. And their reaction was to suspend Perfect for three games. Okay? He got a three-game suspension. This year against the New England Patriots, Perfect went low on Martellus Bennett behind the knees, just, just submarined him when he didn't see it coming, when he didn't even have the friggin' football. 
Okay? He didn't even have the football. And then later on in the game, stomped on LeGarrette Blunt's leg as he was getting up out of a pile. Guy's an asshole. And all he received was a fine. The message that the NFL is sending is that as long as you don't screw up on a national stage where most of the fans can see you, they don't give a fuck what you do. Nope. That scumbag should be... He should have gotten suspended for the rest of the year. We talk about this in hockey with Radko Gudis. The guy has a history of injuring players and putting dirty hits on people. And yet the NHL NHL coddles him. And they give him four-game suspension, five-game suspension. In an 82-game season, that doesn't matter. The fact is, is that the NHL doesn't care about player safety, which is why they're letting that guy still skate around on the ice. The NFL doesn't give a shit about player safety. If they're still letting a guy like Vontez Burfitt go out there and stomp on people and make low hits, and they're all they're going to do is find him. Yep, fine. And then also Landry on Aaron Williams. Yeah, and what it, comes down, well, what it comes down to is it wasn't seen by the entire country. So they don't care because they don't think it hurts their, their margins. And then I think the most egregious thing ever, look at the new kickoff rule. The new kickoff rule has actually resulted in more kick returns. They thought it would eliminate kick returns. And instead, there's more teams who are just kicking it short and making the team, the other team return it. You see Goskowski, that's New England of all teams, are the team that kicks it to maybe a, a yard or two deep into the end zone. Because they have a good coach and a great kicker. And yeah. that's what you do. You take a rule that's set up to help your football team and you exploit the hell out of it until they take it away. Yeah, Belichick believes that he his special teams can get the runner down before he hits the 25. And what you see is a lot more collisions, a lot more tackles, a lot more guys getting hurt. The NFL has a real problem on their hands. I mean, fans are upset. I'm pissed off about it. You're always pissed off. Well, I'm always pissed off. In general. But the fact is is that fans around the league, doesn't matter who you're who what what team you claim, who you're a fan of, teams are fans are pissed off about it. You know, it's just mistakes in judgment. And now you've got players speaking out about it. I mean, Cam Newton flat out went on record to say that uneven officiating and the fact that he's not getting these calls that protect him. It's killing his love for the game. You've seen a ton of premature retirements. Okay? Two mid-season this year. How many guys have retired from the NFL in the last four years that you're like, oh, that guy was a rookie or that guy was in his prime? It's happening. Why? Because they're realizing that the, the league doesn't have their best interests in mind. And they're not going to keep playing this game if it means their future well-being. Okay, so what we're talking about is no one wants, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I have to ask the question, does anybody out there want to see the NFL without players like Cam Newton, Aaron Williams, Antonio Brown? The fact is, is the game stands to lose a significant portion of its talent if it doesn't treat its talent correctly. They need to fix this, and they need to protect their players, because if they don't, the players are going to leave. And they're going to be left with a watered-down product that doesn't mean anything. Sorry, I went off on a rant. I apologize to everybody. Celeste, how are you doing over there? I'm good. You're good? Yeah. Fucking Ross just hit a home run. Come here, talk on the microphone, sweetheart. Good. No, it's not good. (laughs) The win. All right, guys, I'm sorry. I got a little bit fired up there. So 
these, we're watching the uh, World Series game right now, and it looks like there was a home run that David just Ross, this game they, a lot yeah, closer. David Ross just hit a home Six run. Three. Six, Six to three. Six to three. The game's getting closer. And then in the final bit of Bill's news for the week, Percy Harvin has ended his retirement, which I, I'll be honest, if you bet me a paycheck last week and said that Percy Harvin would come out of retirement and continue to play for the Buffalo Bills, I'd call you a liar, and I'd take that bet, and I'd challenge you a beer on top of it. You missed it since you spent an hour with pizza, mm-hmm. which our fans don't need to know about that, but um, Marshall Morgan got released from the practice squad for Reed Ferguson, and for our listeners that have been around, Reed was on our podcast in, in maybe end of July, early August, and he is now back on the practice squad. And he was over here before we started our recording our podcast. <laughs> Reed said Celeste was here. Two mm-hmm. percent body fat on that guy on Percy Harvin. Jacked. He is. He's in shape, ready to go. Yeah, according to Reed Ferguson <laughs> on our practice squad, <laughs> Percy Harvin is ripped and ready to go. Well, I'll tell you, you, they talked to him after the fact when he decided to announce that he was coming back to Buffalo. He cited that, and one of the, again, it plays back to the NFL and what the NFL has become. He cited the fact that he needed time away from football because he was sick and tired. Of, you know, he knew he had hip injuries and knee injuries. He had all these problems. He was sick and tired of football teams trying to tell him, take this treatment, take that treatment. Here's seven more treatments to take. And then continually trying to push up his timetable for recovery because it was in their best interest. He decided he was going to just take the off-season off. He wasn't going to do anything. He was going to let his body just heal. And then he said about week five, he got that itch. And he called his agent and said, hey, I quote, don't do anything. Let's just see if anyone comes knocking. Well, the people who came knocking were Doug Whaley because they remember what he looked like in our in our lineup last season. Well, you know, he's going to reach out to Percy since we're, what, we're four wide receivers injured. <laughs> oh, my so, God. You know, Percy might be a phone call because he already knows the the verbiage and language to our playbook. Apparently, it was Overdorf who brought up the idea. Ah, Jim Overdorf, a guy who I can't friggin' stand. I mean, I'll be honest, if they found his ditch in the car, if they found his car in a ditch tomorrow <laughs> and he wasn't in it, which is a giant blood stain in the front seat and his body was never found, I'd be okay with it. That, I'm okay with that. That I mean, is the pure definition of hate. Right. <laughs> That's how I feel about Tom Brady. Um, so, so I. I'm, but so it's I, low risk. We didn't give up anything. Nothing. Low risk. Low risk. If it works. Right, you're right. You're high right. reward. We didn't. Everyone out there in Bills Land was clamoring for a trade for a wide receiver. Well, the fact is, is that why would you give up draft capital if you don't have to? Let's go get a guy who we think might be able, to, once he's healthy, to really help our football team. Did he have money on, like, dead cap? No. No? No, it's all done. So, he's unlikely to play much against Seattle. Okay, Whaley already came out and said that everyone should temper their expectations because they're going to take it slow with him, work him into game shape, and then back into the offense. But I'll be honest, there isn't a game much bigger than this one. <laughs> Especially yeah. not after that ass-kicking we took this weekend. Well, apparently he's in shape, so. Which brings me to our week eight recap. Okay, buckle yourself in, Bills. Buckle yourselves in, Bills fans. And I'm going to open another beer because <laughs> Jesus Christ, I can't talk about this sober. 
Oh, all right. Yeah, don't tell. You're not even halfway done with that one. You, hey, whoa, don't blow me into our fans. They don't even know what kind of alcoholic yeah, I am. Yeah, true. that is not even, you have one beer that's not half. The bills are killing my liver right now. It's light beer. Well, come on, don't tell me that you literally thought we had a chance this week against Brady. Celeste, you didn't think we had a chance. No. Listen. I didn't think we had a chance. Three o'clock rolled around because I don't have season tickets like Drew. I tuned into the Sabres at three o'clock. I'm sorry, Bills fans. People, oh, people I, ask me why I still go to those games, and I'm like, because one day it's going to happen, and I'm going to be there. Exactly. I was there for the last time we beat them, and it was the most. It was <sighs> one of the sweetest things. Were Ew. you of drinking age? <laughs> yeah, it was 2011, and it was fantastic. And I remember. Oh, I just, forgot about that game. I remember calling. I remember calling home. And just my mom's like, yeah, I can't get your dad on the phone. He's just he's he's kind of running around. I was in Virginia. I was in Maryland. The fact is, is that that game was a game changer for me because what it showed me is that even though we've gone through some dark times and we're still in there, there's hope. Hey, any given Sunday, yeah, any given Sunday, it can happen, right? So when I was approached with the opportunity to sell my New England Patriots tickets, I said, you can go to hell. I don't care. You can give me $200 for a ticket that face values at 45 I wish more people thought that way because there was way too many New England fans. Oh, there, there was so many New England fans. But I'll tell you what. I don't I don't hate on anybody who didn't want to go stand in the rain and watch that game because I didn't either. Celeste, please explain what was happening in your area of the stadium. Well, Bills fans aren't the only troublemakers, it seems. I sit front row end zone, tunnel end zone. My friend sits two rows behind me. He looks to his left before the Patriots first touchdown and sees a bare ass and then realizes that these two New England fans are having sex in the stands. Oh, it's infectious. It's infectious, everybody. The Bill Syndrome. I cannot believe you that. You show up at Ralph Wilson Stadium, you just start doing dumb shit in the stands. I can't, can't believe that can't didn't hit it. Deadspin. Hilarious. Celeste, well, because, I, they're, because they're Patriots fans. Celeste, you need to hit Deadspin. Like, hey... All we have is one person who saw it. There's no like pictures. All right, guys, we're getting away from the podcast. Get it, Barry Pacheski on Twitter, please. Let's bring this all back in here. So let's get back to our week eight recap. I'm going to start off with the stats of the game. Tyrod Taylor went 20 for 40 for 218. That's 50% for anyone else out there who could do the math. And he had zero passing touchdowns. Tom Brady, on the other hand, went 22 for 33 for 315 and four touchdowns. That right there tells you what kind of day we had. One of the more damning statistics of the day, the Patriots were 9 of 13 on third down. The Bills, 4 of 13 on third down. And then you've got Stephon Gilmore. Four receptions allowed, 105 yards and one touchdown to Chris Hogan. Which he could have tackled. I don't think he could have. He could have got him down with the one. That way, that that touchdown could have gone to Blunt and not Hogan. But I'm cool with it. I'm cool with it being Hogan because I got fantasy points. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So we're going to start the game analysis. Bills struggling on third down again for another week. Four losses. I went back through the numbers. All of our losses, we had less than fifty percent conversion rate on third down. According to SportingCharts.com, the Bills are 35.3% for the season on third down. I mean, compare that to New England's 47%. We're just not good. We're just not good on third down. 
And it's incredibly frustrating when you take into account the fact that we're averaging six yards per play on first down. Okay? Now, you look into the reasons why this might be happening. Lack of playmakers on offense kind of limit our options as far as what we can do, what we can get away with. A rushing success on early downs means defenses just stack the boxes, and so our offensive coordinator elects to try to throw the ball on second and third down. You know? It sucks. And then you've got Buffalo ranking 27th in the NFL for three and out percentage. Okay? 25.6% of all Buffalo Bills drives, that's a quarter. That's more than a quarter. So one out of four. End in three and out. And then a punt. That's not acceptable. Our offense, people keep looking at our defense. They keep saying, oh, our defense, our defense isn't doing enough. Our defense isn't doing this or that. Our offense isn't pulling its own weight either. Let's not pretend like it is. Okay? One of the biggest things that stuck out to me standing in the stands watching that football game. And you guys all know me. What? Celeste has something to say? No, what I was going to say is one of the things that stood out to me standing in the stands I'm an X's and O's guy, and I love line play. So I always watch how the line performs. What I noticed is that we got zero A-get pressure against Tom Brady. Now, anybody who who's watched a Patriots game or ever watched a Patriots loss knows that that is how you beat Tom Brady. You have to put pressure in his face because nobody is better at just stepping up in the pocket, throwing a deep ball for a completion than Tom Brady. Okay. Far too often on Sunday, our our upfront pressure got washed to the sides by their guards. And he had Tom Brady, because we elected to drop our linebackers into coverage, he had clean pockets to step up, up into for three and a half to four seconds to just deliver strikes downfield. I mean, there was one where they were third and 20 and he threw a 40-yard pass because we didn't blitz him up the gut. We blitzed him from the edges, and he just stepped up into the pocket. Why didn't they do what they did on Monday night last year? No, that's really. I think. I think, and you heard Rex Ryan say it in his post game comments. I think they thought they could trick them, and yet you're never going to trick Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. You have to smash them in the mouth. That's how you beat them. You punch them in the mouth like Mike Tyson, and instead we opted to try to trick them with coverage, which never works. Teams spend all season trying to trick, quote-unquote, Tom Brady with coverage. You know how often it works? So often that they're 7-1. <sighs> I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's just ridiculous. And I, and I think that the, and he admitted that it was a mistake. So I look for them to kind of correct that going forward. I mean, I know we won't face Brady again, but... Thank God. I think he's going to take that lesson that he learned this week and hopefully move forward with it and apply it to other scenarios like Russell Wilson. And then, like I said last week, now any of you who follow our podcast, I flat out said Lorenzo Alexander, there was no reason for him to be playing special teams when he plays such a predominant role in our defense. So almost like I jinxed us, what happened? He came out this week, he was covering a punt, and he pulled his hamstring, and he came out of the game. And when he came out of the game, we stopped getting pressure on the quarterback. As soon as Lorenzo Alexander came off the field, they started double-teaming Jerry Hughes, 
And Shaq Lawson, I mean, he got one sack, but he wasn't good enough to get it done on his own. I mean, I just, I don't understand it. I don't understand the logic logic of taking one of your best playmakers on defense. The guy who is leading the NFL in sacks right now. And you throw him out there on special teams. Do you see Von Miller running down punts, Chris? No, I but I would say with Lorenzo Alexander, although that is one of his specialties. As soon as I see him performing, like what he did against the Rams, what he had three sacks against L.A., yeah. I don't need him on special teams anymore. No, now he's, you're now you're in my rotation. Yeah, he's, you're in the rotation, and he's of value at what Whaley got him at. We originally got him for special teams. Yeah, yeah, but he proved then, that he's been, right. but he proved he's more valuable. And right. then this man blew up as soon as we cut Manny Lawson. Oh, I, oh, did. I didn't I like that. I exploded. I exploded. Most people didn't like that. And then now that now with the way Alexander is producing on the field, Manny, who nobody's talking about Manny Lawson being gone. I don't know, but what I think is, I think leaving him on special teams after he's amassed the most sacks in the NFL is inexcusable. It's just bad coaching. And, I, and again, I'm not one of these fire Rex kind of guys. No nope, continuity. Inex- I think it's inexcusable that you put your your biggest playmaker on defense out there on special teams and expose him to additional injury risk. I just think it's stupid. Did Amendola have his big return after Lorenzo was out? Yes. See, Lorenzo's also big on special teams. Well, the the fact is is that I'd find a million other guys to play special teams. Reed Ferguson. We'll put Reed Ferguson out there. (laughs) All right, guys. So at the end of the day, Shaq Lawson saw his playing time skyrocket once the Lorax, Lorenzo Alexander, got kicked out of the lineup. It's going to be interesting to watch him grow into that role. And that's one of the things I want to talk about here. It's one of the bright spots of the game. Shaq Lawson, welcome to the AFC East, okay? He recorded his first career sack. I mean, it was a beautiful one, too, because he cleaned, just blew Nate Solder off the ball, went low on him, and then dragged Brady down from behind. It was awesome. It was was a phenomenal sack. It had to be a great moment for him. I know his parents were in attendance. I've talked to him a little bit. And I'm hoping that that's just one of the many sacks and one of many plays that he makes coming in the next few weeks. But then a few, uh, you know, a quarter and a half later, he's flagged for a very questionable roughing the passer call in the third quarter. And you could tell he was frustrated with the officials because he went after him. He was walking after him, dog-talking him, and it took a couple Bills players to pull him away from the referees. It's like someone had to tell him, Shaq, you know, you're welcome to the NFL, man. You're playing in the AFCs with Tom Brady. <laughs> uh, Scott Flick just finished a painting for him and brought it to him and said something to him about going after Tom Brady. He's like, man, that's all I keep hearing everywhere I go this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact is, is that Shaq Lawson got a, got a taste firsthand. When he's a collegiate player, he's allowed to hit quarterbacks like that. All of a sudden, he gets to the NFL and he's allowed to hit most quarterbacks like that, just not that quarterback. And he was clearly frustrated by it, and I like that frustration. I like the fact that we have a player who's willing to say, this is bullshit, that was a clean hit. I don't know, but I like his fire, I like his passion, I like the skill set that he brings to the table, and I look forward to seeing more of it. Now, 
One of the bigger storylines of this game, Stephon Gilmore struggling. Okay. Now that might have been his worst game in the, of his career. He may have had a career low game. I mean, he was the third worst player of the week according to Pro Football Focus. When Tom Brady threw at him, he had, he allowed a passer rating of one fifty eight. Just to kind of you know his his day sucked. I know we talked about it earlier about him letting up catches and touchdowns. The next guy in line, you know, in front of him, I guess the only guy that he hasn't surpassed as far as having a bad day at cornerback was 2013 Justin Rogers. I was, oh, I was hoping you would. We, I would never hear anyone say that name again. <laughs> Justin Rogers against the New York Jets allowed Geno Smith to throw for six catches, oh. 254 yards, and two touchdowns. I remember that. Him. Gilmore's performance on Sunday was probably second or third in line behind that. I mean, it was brutal that I've seen in my lifetime. Why did you have to name Justin Rogers? Now, Rex Ryan claims that Gilmore has had an up-and-down season. But so far, I don't see him. I just don't see him playing like the guy who, you know, you think of as a top-paid cornerback in the NFL. Well, even in the uh, post-game press conference, Rex wouldn't say if – it was Gilmore or Meeks on that Hogan touchdown. I mean, I don't know. But here's what I do know. Gilmore throughout his career has shown flashes of this elite ability. But so far this season, I haven't seen that elite coverage skill that he has or any aggressiveness on the ball. I mean, he had that game against uh, his. both of his interceptions came against Arizona when they were trying to throw on us late. But otherwise, outside of that game, he hasn't been aggressive on the ball, and I think that's I I, I haven't seen any aggressiveness. Period. This also might from be- his play. He plays. He plays. I, I mean, I, I'm going to speculate on this, okay? And I've been fighting with people all over social media about this. For those of us who follow our podcast Twitter, yeah, I got after a whole bunch of you for talking a lot of smack about the guy. Because you know what? At the end of the day, this is a guy who we know that he has the ability. Last year, until he got hurt, he was playing elite cornerback. Now, he comes in and he's struggling. I'm going to speculate a little bit on that. I think he came into this season with a mindset that he needed to break the stigma that he's injury prone. Is that fair? Is that fair of me to say? Yeah, and so far he's done that. He He hasn't really been injured. No, he hasn't. But I think he came into the season with this mindset that, hey, i got to stay healthy if I want to get paid because the Bills aren't going to pay me what I think I'm worth. Okay, The Bills made him a fair offer. He thinks he's worth Josh Norman money. No. But he thinks, <laughs> but, but the Redskins proved that people are willing to pay anything if they think that cornerback is good. So his mindset is probably, and I'm again, I'm speculating, I would, I would think that probably his agent has gotten in his ear. His mindset's gearing towards, I want to stay healthy. I want to stay healthy and prove to other NFL teams that I can stay healthy for a 16-game season. And if I can do that, I'm going to get rewarded with a contract somewhere regardless of what my numbers were this year. That is le- – I mean, that's the only thing I can think because when you – even when you're even second-guessing yourself – and I'm not saying he's maliciously sandbagging the Buffalo Bills – what I'm saying is, is that if it's in the back of your head that, hey, I need to not get hurt on this play, if you're thinking before snap, you're already behind. Defense is the side of the ball where you need to 
read and react. It happens in a matter of seconds and you have to be on point. So if there's any doubt in your mind, you're not going to be playing at the level that you should be. I mean, look at what happened to Takeo Spikes. Takeo Spikes tore his Achilles. Then he came back two years later to the, to football. He wasn't playing for the Bills. He was playing for San Diego. He was never the same. He was never the same player because he had that doubt in the back of his mind. Hey, this might be, don't, don't tackle that guy or take it easy. You don't want to hurt yourself. And he was never the same player that he was with the Buffalo Bills when he was in his prime. The fact is, is that if you approach the game with this timid mindset, you not only hurt yourself from the ability of, hey, I can't get out there and I can't, I'm not going to read and react as fast as I need to, you're going to hurt your team because you're going, to be, you're going to become a liability. And I don't want to say that that's what's happening with Gilmore, but I have this bad feeling in my stomach that that's what it is. I think that he wants to get out there and see how much he can earn, and because of it, he's kind of not slacking, but he's not giving 100%. Sometimes I feel like when playing the Patriots, they are not as aggressive because they're worried they're just going to get flagged and then give well, them a play Well, that's anyways. also true. And that's also true. So who knows? But it's a long season, and Gilmore has a lot of time to bounce back. And one of the things I've been getting on everybody about is do not give up on this guy. Okay, When people were tweeting at him some of the most ruthless shit I've ever seen in my life, you know what? Fuck you guys. Okay, He's our guy. Okay, He's here. He's here, he's wearing my jersey, and I'll go to war for that guy and with that guy every single week until he's not here anymore. I feel like the majority of Bills fans, they find someone they don't like, they don't like the quarterback, they don't like Gilmore, they don't, whatever, and then they want to see him fail because they want to be right. Yeah, it's bullshit. Like I said, we have, I don't know, I don't want to call it an obligation, but we have a job as fans to try to lift these guys up because I'll tell you what, I've never seen, I've never seen something like this before in my life, but you want to talk about how athletes, oh, they're supposed to ignore us fans. Almost as if we're not here. You know, I've seen it so many times, oh, on social media, well, if he can't take it, he should just quit, or he should delete his account, whatever. These people are fucking human, okay? Best case, uh, the, the best example of this I can give, a game against the New York Giants, the year that they won the Super Bowl, when they had the earth, wind, and fire rushing attack, when they had Brandon Jacobs, when they had everything going for him. They eventually went on that season. They beat us here after trailing in Ralph Wilson Stadium. They went on to beat us and then win a Super Bowl against the Patriots. It was a goal line stand, fourth and one. They've got Brandon Jacobs in the backfield. The guy's so big he could lean over the goal line and just tuck the ball over. So we started chanting. Me and my buddy just started chanting Anthony Hargrove's name. He was a defensive end for the Buffalo Bills. He was in on that goal line package. Before the, before the offense even broke their huddle, we started chanting Hargrove's name. And we saw him kind of looking back at the stands. And then, you know, 10, 15 people got in on it. And pretty soon we had like 50 people chanting Hargrove's name. You see him look ba- He looked back at us and he started, you know, he started getting pumped. And he started doing like the pump up the crowd kind of motion. And then he ran down the defensive line slapping guys on the helmet. When they snapped that ball, Anthony Hargrove took out the tackle and the guard, and we just flooded into their backfield and smoked Brandon Jacobs for a three-yard loss. The fact is, is this is an emotional game, and emotions play a lot into it. They feed off us. So, so rather than just fucking dog these guys, wouldn't you want to be there to try to lift them up, try to help them find another level, or try to just 
if they're in a rut, help pick them up rather than be a part of the, just be a part of that thing that's beating them down. It's one of the few things I can't get around when it comes to Bill Sands, and it mm-hmm. drives me crazy. I mean, Celeste, I'm sure you see a lot of it. I try to ignore a lot of it. I don't need to get into arguments online. Because <laughs> well, I'm a girl, so I don't know anything about well, football. Well, I, I got all day, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. So, we're going to get back to some of the positive notes, some of the positive takeaways from the game. First off, Gillisley, he looked good. Okay, as a starting running back in the NFL, Mike Gillisley Gillisley performed well, even though it was a loss. I mean, he ran hard. He showed some real explosion on some of his runs, especially off-guard and tackle. I mean, he he had a run of 28 yards. He had another run for 16 yards. And then, even when they stacked the box, he still managed to find a way to get three or four yards here and there. That's impressive to me, considering that, yeah, he's not LaShawn McCoy. He's not going to be lightning in a bottle. But he averaged 7.1 yards per carry. That is incredible, given the fact the Patriots knew all they had to do was take away our running game, and we were neutered. None that we just abandoned it anyways. That's true. (laughs) Again, poor play calling. Anthony Lynn has not done this team any favors in their two losses. I feel like he's played a big role because he's tried. he tries to get cute. He's like, oh, well, they're, they're expecting the run, so let's pass. No, go out there and punch them in the mouth and see if they can take it. That's how you play the game of football. I just like the fact that considering how important McCoy is to our success throughout the rest of the season, Gillisley showed well. Even Jonathan Williams had a touchdown run. I mean, it's... It'll be interesting to see what our depth running backs can kind of put together for us as the season progresses, but it's worth noting that Gillesley looked good with the carries he was given on Sunday. Then you got Darius's return. Okay. Marcel Darius returned to the starting lineup, and you could see the the effect he had on our defensive line. He himself recorded four tackles, two of them went for a loss, and he had a sack in his very first game back. Kyle Williams ended up as pro football focus's best player on the Bills' defense. You think it's an accident? No. It's because they were focusing all their attention on Marcel Darius because he was being so disruptive up front. And Kyle Williams gets one-on-one matchups with guards and centers who really can't handle him. All in all, I think that Marcel Darius, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, he showed up for as many people who were bitching about it on social media. Marcel Darius showed up big for us in his very first game back for the season to have two tackles for a loss and a sack in his first game. I think that's huge. But then if you talk to him and ask him how he feels, he admitted he's not used to playing yet. Oh, man. I feel like a player coming off the streets right now, man. Sore as hell. <laughs> that was from BuffaloBills.com. I mean, that guy's going to need an ice bath. That's that's the thing. He's not 100%. Again, I've seen Bills fans out there on social media just just calling for him to be traded, for him to be released. Oh, he'll be cut soon. I had to go out of my way to shut up some troll online. Chris saw it. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, because he was hammered. The fact or is, I guys, am hammered. The, 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 fact, guys, the fact is, guys... Marcel Darius came back and did very well for what was asked of him in that game. And that brings us to the hero and zero of the game. 
Now, we give this award away every week, and this week, I have to give the hero of the week away to the guy who threw the dildo on the field. The duck! Toss it to Hogan. Hogan gets hit inside the five by Stefan Gilmore. Some fan threw something right out on the field, too, at about the one-yard line. Yeah, initially I thought it might have been a flag, but I didn't say it because it didn't look yellow. So they've discarded that. And it's now... <laughs> they've discarded that. That's Ian Eagle and Dan Fouts from CBS Sports. <laughs> now, I'll be honest. As a general rule, I do not condone throwing objects onto the field of play. I think that's bullshit. I think it's dangerous to our players. I, I don't like it. And <laughs> I think that this incident just serves to not only make our fan base look like bigger assholes than we already do, but it's also going to increase pat-downs at the gates, which are just going to slow me down from getting to my seat. But Jesus Christ, he gave me something to laugh at in the middle of all of that. Just We need stuff to... It's been 16 years. I haven't been able to legally drink with the Bills in the playoffs. Celeste, I know you don't know what that's about because you're not much of a drinker. Although, if I were you, after watching what Drew was doing tonight, I would be, might become an alcoholic. The fact I think that- I'm drunk just being here. <laughs> too much booze flying around here, people. The fact is, is that the guy who threw the dildo on the field, he is, he's also kind of a tool bag. But it, it gave me a laugh when I really needed a pick-me-up. Hey, I really well, needed hey, a pick-me-up. Well, I mean, let's look at the, the, the basis of this. It came from the end zone. He threw it across the end zone to the one-yard line. Tyrod doesn't like looking down the middle of the field. I mean, hey, let's bring this guy in for a tryout. He can use the middle of the field. Oh my! God. He likes to throw down the seams. You know, it <laughs> might it might be. Oh, hey, Doug Whaley, it might be worth a look. You Just get, saying. You get the fuck out of here. And that brings us to our zero of the week. Chris, why don't you? You blew it. And that brings me to the Buffalo Bills secondary. I know you all. You would all love it out there if I gave this award to Stephon Gilmore because that seems to be the popular consensus that he somehow single handedly cost us this game. Gilmore didn't have anything to do with Gronkowski's 75 yards off deep passes right down the middle between the safeties. Dude, what are we doing putting Roby Coleman on Gronk? That's like a 7 to 8 inch difference. Yeah, I don't know what that was. And then Amendola and Bennett's 53 yards in the short middle area of the field. That's in our linebackers, okay? So none of that had anything to do with Gilmore, yet everyone seems to scapegoat him for this friggin' loss. I hate it. The fact is our defense as a whole struggled, and our secondary just, I don't know, they couldn't keep with their assignments, and Brady is an extremely accurate quarterback. So he found the weaknesses in our D and exploited it. At the end of the day, that's that, that's all you can take away from that. I can't remember who it was I heard on WGR, I think, said that they sometimes they didn't have enough time even to get the play to the other end of the field. So half the secondary was saying one call, and the other half was doing something else. Yeah. And I think it has to do with Aaron Williams not being there. Well, that's a huge that, – that, that's a big point. Aaron Williams out of this defense is a huge loss. You know, you can thank Jarvis Landry for that, that fucking scumbag. 
How many dildos are going to get thrown at him when they come in Christmas Oh, season? Jesus. I, I hope it's an avalanche. Dildos and gas masks. <laughs> weed masks. Snowballs. The fact is that our defense is a whole struggle. And you whether it was because the pass rush wasn't consistent, because of injury, because of the size of the tight ends, it doesn't matter. The fact is, is that nothing we did worked, and Rex Ryan owned it post-game. He said that their defensive plan didn't work and that he was going to try to learn from it. So for all of you out there, stop beating up Stephon Gilmore on social media. I don't know how else to say it. Leave the guy alone. Jesus. And then we get to our, that, that brings us to our AFC's roundup. Now, usually every episode we talk about what else went on in the division. So it was kind of boring. I mean, we already know New England kicked the shit out of us. Miami, they were on the bye. Now, they're going to come off their bye. They've got their week of rest, and they're going to take on the other team in our division, the New York Jets. The Jets this past week somehow found a way to avoid disaster. I was so rooting for the Browns. They narrowly defeated the Browns 31-28. to The winless Cleveland Browns. I mean, at one point... The Jets were behind twenty to seven. Let's. I just want to take a quick recap of the stats. Josh McCown threw for three hundred and forty-one yards and two touchdowns against the Jets defense. Terrell Pryor had over a hundred yards, and Duke Johnson had one hundred and sixteen all-purpose yards between rushing and receiving. Nine different players on the Browns team caught passes of more than five yards. Somehow. Out of all this bullshit, Fitzpatrick managed to not turn the ball over once. And he brought him back after halftime. I mean, they scored four consecutive times. And then barely hung on for the victory. Well, how about this? Fitz didn't even throw 375. You're clear on your shirts, John, your Seagrams. Although I am not. As soon as we're done recording this, I'm going to have to drink a Seagrams on camera. Oh, Absolutely. So now the question becomes, Miami's playing the Jets. Who do you root for? I mean, the winner of that game is going to be 4-5, and five, which is exactly where the Bills are going to be if they can't find a way to win in what on paper looks to be a pretty rough matchup against the Seattle Seahawks on the road. You know, I mean, that, that stadium's tough to play in. That's a, their, their team is tough to play against. A loss this week will guarantee the Buffalo Bills third place in the division via tiebreakers. So the question becomes, is this a game the Bills can win? All right, guys, well, to help us answer that question, I've got on a special guest with us tonight, Mr. Lars Russell. Now, for those of you who probably don't know, Lars Russell is the he's a writer and a podcaster for FieldGulls.com which is the SB Nation affiliate that covers the Seahawks, kind of like how we have our BuffaloRumblings.com. Lars, how are you doing tonight? What's happening, guys? <laughs> Not much. We're just uh, sitting here in rainy Buffalo trying to figure out uh, what the hell's going to happen on Monday night. So first off, i got to ask, you know, what, what is it that got you into writing, and how is it that being, since you're from Austin, Texas, how, how is it, or at least that you're living there now, how did you become a Seattle Seahawks fan? Well, I... I I got into the Seahawks. I grew up in Seattle. Um, I lived there, you know, most of my childhood, although I've moved around quite a bit since then. Um, so, you know, that fondness for the hometown, you know, um, I guess 
carried me through the kind of uh, shame of being a Seahawks fan for, for most of my <laughs> early adulthood. Um, and it's reaping its benefits nowadays. I, I think it's been a, lot, a good five years. But um, it's very funny, you know, living in Texas now, you know, I grew up running into Cowboys fans everywhere. And I, you know, I lived as a teenager in Michigan and later on, you know, in Wisconsin and New York and, and uh, Wyoming and New Orleans. And everywhere I went, there were Cowboys fans. Um, and they never felt like real fans. Everyone I know had kind of adapted the team during the mid-90s when they were winning Super Bowls, whereas nobody could question, you know, the sanctity of, of my rooting for Seattle because no one would otherwise choose to be a Seahawks fan. <laughs> and, and now I live in Texas, and the Cowboys are pretty good this year, but they've been mostly uh, horrendous. And so all the dynamics flip. Every time I meet Cowboys fans, I have to kind of apologize that I'm the Seahawks fan during this kind of run of championship <laughs> caliber team as well. The Cowboys have been terrible, and they're sort of the earnest fans who are sticking by their guns. Well, I'll tell you, man. I, see, now the Seahawks are an interesting team for me because, me personally, I hold a grudge against a lot of teams. To, to, uh, clearly, obviously, the New England Patriots because, but, but almost any franchise. Can, you know, I always find myself rooting against teams like Green Bay, teams like um, New England, teams that have won a lot. You know, throughout their history, they've won a lot, and so their fans don't really know what it, they can't relate to me. They don't know what it's like to be a fan of a team that just disappoints them all the time. But the Seahawks were bad for a long time, and then just good drafting. They got a new owner who wanted to, you know, spend some money and wanted to. Be, and next thing you know, they're they're doing well. You know, they're winning championships and going to playoff, you know, going going to play meaningful playoff games and things of that nature, which is awesome. You know, that's what you want to see. You want to see that progression as a fan. And now that we've got a new owner and we've got some new energy building. I'm just hoping that at some point we can kind of pull off that same kind of transition. Yeah, I think Seattle's a pretty much a model franchise. Um, you know, I mean, obviously New England is sort of the, the, the team that everyone's chasing as far as the uh, continued citizens, but, you know, uh, I definitely don't blame you for not wanting to uh, follow in the footsteps of your biggest rival. Oh, yeah, no. So there's a couple questions that I ask every single guest that we have on the show, and uh, you're not excluded from that. First off, what is, and I'm pretty sure I maybe already know the answer, but your favorite Seahawks game of all time? Uh, well, I, I, I might surprise you, although maybe this isn't surprising. I'm not going to say the Super Bowl because that's too easy. I, I, I got I to go with the Marshawn Lynch um, run against the Saints in 2010 in the playoffs. I really feel like that kind of inaugurated this wave of Seahawks success. Even though that was a Seattle team that went seven and one and won its division, it wasn't quite on the par with the teams that came, you know, a couple of years later, um, beginning when Russell Wilson arrived. But I, I was kind of going through a difficult time in my life at that point. I was living in New York City, and you know, kind of just showing up with this humility of being, oh man, we're this uh, losing team that that qualified for the playoffs, the winning division, we're hosting the defending champions in our building, and I'm sitting there in this pizza place watching the game with a bunch of people who don't care about Seattle at all. And uh, and when Marshawn broke that run to really seal the game, at that point, Seattle had kind of been mostly behind, then kind of took the lead, was barely hanging on. You got the sense that the Saints got the ball back. Um, they were definitely going to shut the door. And instead, Seattle burst out to a two-score lead with this incredible run. And I've always been a fan of running backs. Um, you know, I played a little bit of running back in high school. And I just enjoyed, you know, some of the great Seattle backs from all time. Kurt Warner, the original Kurt mm -hmm. Warner, spelled with a C, who was from the 80s. And then in the 90s, Chris Warren, I always thought he never got his uh, – this bull do is one of the top running backs along with Emmett Smith and Barry Sanders in that era. And he kind of faded in the late nineties and was forgotten. Um, Sean Alexander, obviously got a lot of credit, but you know, I think a lot of Seahawks fans actually kind of um, 
sneer at Alexander because he wasn't the physical kind of back. And, you know, we had gotten your guy. You traded us Marshawn Lynch, saved our franchise oh, in a sense. It was uh, unbelievable. Although we didn't quite know it until that moment uh, when he burst down this run. He just kind of ran through a guy with a first down, and I'm already cheering, and then he's going through another guy and another guy. And for a minute, I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to score. I don't want him to score. We need to kill the clock here. But it was just such a good run when he kind of ran through, uh, I think, Roman Harbor for the second time, and it was clear he was going to make the path to the end zone. I was standing up on my bar stool. I was so happy. It felt such a relief awesome. to have broken through in that moment. And uh, so that's probably my favorite moment, although I could, you know, name things from my childhood that kind of really solidified my fandom. Um, that's the first reference. See, you know what? I, I've been emailing one of our listeners who has a bunch of old Bills games that he's uh, digitizing from VHS. And I had sent him an email, and I and I had asked him for a specific game, and a lot of I think Drew, Drew can attest to this. There's a lot of uh, games that you watch growing up as a kid where you can relate it to like a father son moment. There was it was the final game of the 2000 season where we had Doug Flutie, and I specifically remember watching that game on Sunday night, where and Doug Flutie tore it up to get our, our listener Eric. To get him like the exact date of the game, I actually looked at the stats. Doug Flutie went like twenty of twenty-five for like three hundred and thirty yards and three touchdowns. And I specifically remember sitting in my living room in Atlanta, and my dad was like losing his mind over the way Doug Flutie was playing against Seattle. And this listener has this game on tape, and he's digitizing it and sending it to me. So that's a little <clears throat> bit of sentiment for me as far as a Bill Seahawks game goes. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what, Lars. That the trade for Marshawn Lynch to you guys was basically one that we made because we had to. He didn't want to be here. Now, when he was here, we saw bursts of him being that type of athlete, but he just wasn't happy here. And it, players are human beings. You know, I try to, <clears throat> I, I t- try telling all of our fans that. You know, we I get in a fight, not not fights because I don't really I try not to argue on social media because that's pointless. But I try to get get people to understand that these guys are human. And so you got a guy like Marshawn Lynch who's supremely talented who just does not want to be in Buffalo. You're never going to get max production out of a guy who's someplace he doesn't want to be. So when we sent him to you guys and he just ignited the way that he did, I was one of the few people who wasn't shocked because I saw it coming. I mean, I knew what he was capable of. He just didn't want to do it here. So I'm glad somebody got something out of that. Yeah, well, it definitely definitely worked out for Seattle. You know, I, I... I think there are definitely players who, you know, I mean, it's been a uh, popular point that Jim Kelly didn't want to play in Buffalo either, and he obviously went on to a lot of success. I think players, you know, with the right mentality can play through that. You know, I think Marshawn Lynch definitely, you know, you can see how the change of scenery benefited him, benefited him, his lifestyle. You know, I think his attitude even caused some friction within Seattle behind closed doors, as a lot of people suggest. Uh, But, you know, and he didn't really break out that first season either. He, He kind of came along slowly that that run against the Saints was really out of nowhere, and it wasn't until kind of midway through 2011 he really became one of the premier backs in the league. Um, but I remember that feeling that, you know, he had been a first-round pick. He was a guy I knew. It was almost like the same kind of excitement I had when they signed Pete Carroll. It was just that, like, oh, my God, we've got, like, a real talent coming here, and yeah. it might, you know, change us. And so, it, you know, I was <coughs> hopeful about Marshawn, but it wasn't until that moment that I really kind of started to see the future. So the last question before we get into our uh, scouting report here. What is your game day routine? So you're 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 out of town. You're not in Seattle. So I'm assuming you don't go to the you don't go to the games. So what do you do on game day? Like what is your? Do you have a ritual? Do you have a certain thing you like to eat, drink, 
some place you like to go? Um, yeah, I, I go I watch the games. There's a bar, a local Seahawks bar here in Austin, where um, you know it's, some, it's something I never had done before. Like you know, like I mentioned before, I lived in New York City and I lived in a bunch of other places in San Francisco for a while, um, and I never really enjoyed going to a, a spot where you know a bunch of fans of my team were watching the game because I I always had I was always kind of the person who liked to watch it, especially if it's an important game. I kind of want to watch it in private and kind of just like really mm-hmm. focus on it and think about it. And, and, you know, maybe I get emotional, but not having to do it in the kind of like uh, group think setting where everyone's kind of yelling and screaming or otherwise yeah. complaining or kind of drowning themselves. <gasps> and so I didn't really get into it, but uh, the second year I lived in Austin. So it's kind of funny. I lived, moved, moved down here more or less right as Seattle started to be this burgeoning power. And, and in 2012 was when I came down here. And I remember the first, uh, first fall I was here. Um, I kind of had suspicions Seattle was going to be good that year, but people weren't sure yet. Russell Wilson was still a rookie, and I remember I went to Green, uh, Seattle was playing Green Bay on a Monday night. And I was like, "Oh, there's a chance I can see the Seahawks," because I didn't know there was local bars that would show the games here. And um, I went to this one. I went to some bar, like a pool hall, actually, to watch the Monday night game against the Packers, and that ended up being the, the Phil Mary game. Um, and I, I missed the ending. I, I left. They'd been stopped mm-hmm. on fourth down. Um, late in the game in the fourth quarter, and I was like, oh, that's it. I had to go see my friend's band play. And I, so I missed the ending. I didn't find out until the next oh, morning because wow. I got so drunk that night. But uh, <laughs> then I kind of followed along that year, um, and then obviously there was a lot of high hopes after they you know, they lost in the division round of the Atlanta that year. And the next year they kind of entered as a Super Bowl favorite, and I was like, i got to find a place to watch the games more regularly. Um, so I located this bar. Uh, and I've more or less been going there ever since. I kind of found a group of people there who I liked hanging out with in, in more than just a drinking capacity. And uh, so I feel like a duty to show up for them and not feel like I'm flaking, even though <laughs> lots of other people have kind of come and gone from that group since then. And, and you know, since Seattle's been so successful, obviously won the Super Bowl during that time, um, you know, it's really a community there and it attracts a lot of people. So I try to show up as often as I can. It's a little harder now with the field goals duties. Sometimes mm-hmm. I have to do live blogging during the games. Um and so it's a little more stressful to kind of get that out from my phone while I'm in this bar full of crazy people and whatnot. Uh, but I can't even what imagine I what that's like. Man. Do, uh, I can't even uh, imagine what that's like. In Austin, Texas. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that's like trying to write when you're in a bar full of just people who are either freaking out or who are cheering or are going or nuts. Or people that act like you. No, there's nobody out. Because people like me don't go in public. They watch the bar in their basement like I do. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I was always, I was a guy who, you know, even though, like I said, I like to watch in private. I, I always preferred that. I still feel the emotions of it, and I would like stand on tables and yell out and stuff like that. So I had I had been embraced by this kind of group dynamic, and certainly the drunkenness helps. And so, yeah, oh, yeah. it's a little different to, to sort of sort of have to suppress that bit and try to focus on okay, this quarter is any. I get a good stats down and put it in my little brief post and and whatnot. <laughs> Especially last week against Arizona was one of the most intense games, and I, you know I had to post something literally the second the game ended. And we didn't know how it was going to end. It was in sudden death. I'd never been in that situation before. So the, the kind of the stress combined with the actual stress of the game was overpowering my ability to kind of follow what was going on and keep track of it. So it really changed my viewership. Um, but, you know, I make the most of it. You know, I was going to switch gears and get on with this report, but now i got a question for you. Sure. That game, you're talking about the intensity of that overtime and realizing like this is sudden death and it's coming down and it's you're on you're on the edge of your seat watching this game because you're like you could, all it takes is one play to change this game, all it takes is one right. play, all it takes is one play, and then the clock hits zero and there's no play, and isn't it? I would almost feel deflated almost because I worked myself up like emotionally. I'm at this. I'm on the ledge, and then all of a sudden, either one way or the other. You know what I mean? It's not like I, it's not like I won. 
It's not like I lost. It just ends. Yeah, yeah. It would be so anticlimactic. I I was was sort of too just. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say that it had to be just crazy anticlimactic. I mean, I I was a little too distracted by the things I had to do, but you know, honestly, I wasn't upset. I mean, we. Seattle fans must have assumed that they were going to lose the game, you know, when the Cardinals got down to the one-yard line. And Seattle had this incredible goal and stand to even keep the, hold the Cardinals to a field goal attempt. But you're assuming that they're going to kick the field goal, and he misses the chip shot right into the upright. And so everything switches around again, and then Seattle drives down, and then they have a shot, and and then Hauschka misses that kick. So that, then it's like, oh my, by then you kind of knew the tie was coming. So it wasn't like the last the, the clock hit zero, and then you're like, oh, my God, it was a tie. I, I I didn't mind it. I was definitely happy after all that, even though Seattle had a chance to win the last minute. Um, I was I was happy to get out of the road game in that circumstance, as beat up as they were with just a tie. Um, and I'm not I'm not of the camp that a lot of people I've heard the last few weeks. Oh my God, why do we have ties in pro football? I kind of wish they still had ties in college football. I kind of like the tradition of it. I think it's funny the way it ruins the standings, sort of. Um, Although it's going to be funny now because there's another NFC team that has a tie with Washington yet, so we'll see how that matches up at the end of the year. But, you know, I'm not opposed to ties. I think that, you know, again, it could work to the advantage as far as tiebreakers with other teams, and we don't have to worry about, you know, I've been kind of watching the standings in years past, oh, are the Packers going to have the same win level or lower win level? And now I'm not worried about that, assuming they don't tie sometime later on in the year. Um, and and so, that, you know, it wasn't such like a breathless sort of uh, disappointment to find a tie. It certainly preferred to a loss. I'd, I'd take that That's over true. what happened last week any day. <clears throat> I guess I've never seen a Bills game end in a tie, so I, would, I just had to ask. So, no doubt. So we're going to move on here. So offensive scouting report. I've been digging through the numbers. I've been watching tape on your team. And I guess this season is the first season that I've ever seen with my own two eyes, the Seattle Seahawks, because ever since they've had this resurgence, I've never seen the Seahawks play this way. I've got some statistics and I've got some questions. First off, I'm going to start with your rushing attack. Now, Christine Michaels, he's your starter, but he seems like he's struggling. I mean, he averaging 4.1 yards per carry, right? But it seems like almost none of it's coming after contact. I see a lot of one and two yards, zero yards, run for a loss, and then he'll break a longer run. You know, kind of, kind of almost like what you guys were seeing out of CJ Spiller, you know, or what Buffalo fans saw out of CJ Spiller. You know, he would run for twenty-eight, thirty yards on one play, and then the next eight runs he'd get a combined thirteen yards. I mean, it seems a lot. It seems like that's what I'm seeing out of Christine Michael so far. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, the, I think the pattern is a little bit different than that. I mean, he tends to you know, kind of break out during periods in the game. He'll have three or four, like, 10-yard runs in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he does go through spells where he's caught by the line of scrimmage, and he, he definitely doesn't add yards. He doesn't have yards after contact very frequently the way that we got so used to with Marshawn. I mean, Marshawn Lynch used to go up into the line, and it was like, you, you kind of wanted him to hit the, hit the hole with that verse that Christian Michaels tries to carry mm-hmm. it through, but he would almost, like, get into the hole and then decide to kind of crouch down. And I described it in one article as like a crab motion. He just kind of started moving sideways and then people would kind of latch onto him and then he would just drive forward with that. Oh yeah. You don't do that for Michael at all. Marshawn was a much more powerful running back. You know, Marshawn Lynch was a much more powerfully built guy. I think Christy Michaels is more like a slasher. I think that's more of the mold that he's in. Yeah. I think he can bounce off guys. It's just, you know, he, he has a tendency, right, to go down at first contact or even avoid contact. He's, and the coaches have been upset with him in the past few weeks for, for diving out of bounds before the sticks when he could have just kind of turned it up and, and made contact with the guy and, and, and 
falling forward, which is something that, you know, Marshawn definitely kept driving the and going forward. I think, you know, Seattle's a few weeks away, supposedly, from getting Thomas Rawls back, you know, and, and he adds more of that physicality to the game, although he also is, like, quick cut, you know, to the whole back mm-hmm. a little bit more than Marshawn was. Um, and so I think you've diagnosed part of the problem uh, correctly, although, you know, the other dynamic is that the offensive line has changed. Um, in years past, Seattle was sort of known as a team with this mauling, running offensive line, but a pretty porous line as far as pass protection goes. And so um, it's a little bit flipped this year where their pass protection is actually 10th in, um, in adjusted sacks allowed by football outsiders' DV- or, uh, measurements. And their running game, is, or their adjusted line yards for rushing has been way down. So Michael hasn't uh, made some of the extra yards he could have, but he's also been, been kind of really beset by, uh, you know, defensive lineman kind of right up in this grill and hasn't had the lanes to run through that uh, Seahawks backs have been able to take advantage of in the past few years. Okay, so then I have to ask the question, because I saw C.J. Procise put up, uh, what, 100, 100, over 100 total yards in your last game against the Saints. Now, mind you, the Saints are a very good run-defending team, but, I mean, does he look like a like he's growing into that role is he's you know kind of finding he's a rookie so he's kind of finding his way throughout the first couple weeks of the season does it look like he's starting to catch on or is, was do you think that his performance last week was kind of a flash in the pan well it's, it's hard to judge that i mean process really wasn't active until last week he played a little bit against the dolphins week one and he, he broke his or either sprained his wrist or, or he was wearing a cast on his wrist more or less for the last six weeks i think he was active against the cardinals perhaps uh or at least he was healthy, but he didn't get in much if he was. And uh, and so last week was the first time we really saw him at any length. Um, and, in fact, they, they cut T.J. Spiller to uh, to make room for him on the active mm-hmm. roster. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the, the 100 yards is a little misleading. He, that's all-purpose yards, and he had a big 43-yard catch um, on kind of a trick play where Seattle threw it to um, another undrafted rookie, Tanner McAvoy, who was a quarterback at Wisconsin, playing receiver for Wisconsin, or sorry, for Seattle. So they threw it out on like a sideline pass from the receiver to CJ Prostay. So there's just like a trick play element that gains him 40 or almost 50 yards, sets up Seattle's only offensive touchdown of the day, as a matter of fact. And so that counts for a big chunk of Prostay's yards. He also had 20 or so more yards catching and then, you know, 34, 35 rushing. So it's not like he's breaking through the line for 100 yards uh, against the Saints. Um, he definitely offers a different element, more of that kind of Ricky Waters type or, or, or you know, uh, a Matt Forte sort of, you know, or even like a C.J. Spiller, obviously, kind of a, a dynamic back that can be mm-hmm. uh, an actual runner but also offers the chance to catch a ball on a swing pass or a wheel route or something like that. Uh, so he, I think and rather than a, 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 an alternative to, to Kristen Michael, I think he can be um, more of a complement. And I think, again, like it'll be even more apparent when Thomas Rawls is kind of the extra physical force when he comes back, mm-hmm. uh, assuming he gets healthy in a couple of weeks. But I don't see Prostate as really like a, an alternative in terms of an every-down lead-back type of role. Although, you know, okay. there's hope that maybe in a few years he could become potentially a feature back. Well, now, so you guys have gotten so used to your kind of – I saw it a lot last season where you guys – you're one of the few teams in football who have been able to recently – Use your running attack to because most teams use the pass and then they set up the run. You know the Saints have been getting away with it for years. The Patriots do it. There's a lot of teams. The Green Bay Packers do it. There's a lot of teams that win football games by using the pass to set up their running abilities. But the Seahawks have kind of always been that. You know since they've started winning consistently, they've been the team that have used their running game to set up their passing game. 
you know, they get teams to stack the box and then they take advantage of one-on-one on the outside. Well, I'm taking a look at the numbers here and rushing first downs. The Seattle Seahawks this season are 27th with only 33 rushing first downs. The Bills are second with 65. So what do you now I you touched on it a little, just a few minutes ago about your offensive line struggles. Do you think that maybe in an attempt to try to fix, you know, I don't know if it's a personnel change. I don't know what it is, but like you said, their pass protection got better and their run blocking got worse. I mean, what is it that you think? Do you think it's the running back, you know, maybe just the lack of not having a Thomas Rawls on the roster? What is it that's holding back your ability to do a lot of damage with that running attack? It's hard for me to diagnose Precisely, you know, I'm not like a scout, and I've often the line play or, or play calling, um, so I I can't, you know, I've looked at the film and tried to figure it out for myself. I've been I've actually been writing this week about kind of what goes into the offensive play calling um, and what what's been lacking for them the last few weeks as they've struggled so much against the Cardinals and then the Saints. Um, you know, part of it is sort of bad luck. I think they've had a lot of uh, penalties, a combination of of holding penalties and false starts and things like that, but putting them really behind schedule, which is reducing the opportunity to run for first downs. Um, but there's no question they haven't executed it perfectly when they've been in third and short situations. It's They're, I think, like 58% uh, in power running circumstances according mm-hmm. to football outsiders, uh, which, you know, is a pretty good success rate yeah. in general running circumstances, but it's not very good relative to, because power situations are with less than two yards to gain. Exactly. So if they're only making less than 50, the 60% of that, it's not great. I think they're 24th or 22nd or something in that area. And so part of that's definitely on Michael. I think I get a little bit of a, you know, a cocktail of those factors that we've already talked about. And I hope that we can see a little bit more of that edge uh, when Thomas Rawls comes back, although there's no certainty that Rawls, you know, will ever be fully healthy. I mean, he had a broken ankle that kept him out all off season, and then yeah, he comes true. back. He's supposed to be full strength again in game two, and then he uh, broke his fibula, uh, which is like the shin bone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a question of if that riddleness is, is going to carry on, whether he's going to be ever at full strength, or he's missed so many mm-hmm. reps already this year that he's just not going to fully develop. But, you know, the counter of that is that he was in only eight starts last year, the far and away the leader in DYAR football outsiders. He's really physical back, and so he definitely changed some of the mentality. And often the line actually keys off of that when they're blocking for him. And mm-hmm. we heard about that all during training camp. So everyone was stoked to see Rawls because he didn't play in the preseason coming off an injury uh, in the regular season. We just haven't really seen that come through. Michael was uh, uh, was a kind of surprised in the fact that he played better than he has in years past. He was on Seattle for the last four years, but he actually was so disappointing to the team. They cut him or actually traded him to Dallas last year, and he kind of wound his way circuitously back after Marshawn Lynch and Thomas Rawls were hurt toward the end of last season, which is yeah. why he, he found a second chance. And he was, you know, getting hyped up as this, oh, my God, he's had this awakening running back. And he looked good. You know, that certainly was the best performing running back they had um, in the first few weeks of the season. He had, you know, 150 yards running against the 49ers in week three. And he just kind of, it's almost like he got comfortable again and went back to the Kristen Michael who was content to, to not force, uh, you know, carries after contact and try to go out of bounds. So he's kind of rest a little bit to his old form. And we'll see if Rawls' return helps that or whether the CFs can find a way to scheme themselves into better situations. But part of that is just getting into short yardage situations where they can actually kind of continue rolling and move that as change and sort of start to, like you say, establish the run and the way they've done in years past. See, now I think that almost plays to the strength of the Buffalo Bills because our defensive line has played, I mean, I mean, we haven't put, we're kind of middle of the pack on defense right now, but our defensive line and our defense against the run as a, as a whole, 
I feel like when you're facing a team that's having issues, that's struggling, I think that that's one of the things that we've excelled against, and it's one of the reasons that we have a winning record against the NFC West. Because you're talking about a lot of teams that are having all, all one of the things that all three of the teams that we've played so far have in common: offensive line problems. Not to say that it's a quote-unquote problem, but just that either guys were hurt, guys haven't been playing up to expectation, that they've, like in your case, your guys are excelling at pass protection all of a sudden, and yet you're falling behind in the running attack. Well, the Bills lead the league in sacks right now. And we've got Jerry Hughes, who's number four in the entire league for quarterback pressures. I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of a feather in our cap to say, hey, you guys are going to try to run, but running hasn't been your caveat. What was, what was that stat that you spit out? Maybe it was last week or a couple weeks ago about Adolphus Washington. Adolphus Washington, he's a rookie we drafted in the third round. He actually has the best grade for defensive tackles against the run. Amongst rookies. Amongst rookies. And considering he was a third round pick, I mean, we've got not only do we have high end starters, but we've also got depth at that position. I think that the fact that you guys are struggling to run the ball might kind of play almost to our advantage a little bit. A little bit. One of the other things I noticed when I was looking over your statistics, third down. You know, earlier on in the show, I discussed that the Bills are struggling mightily on third down and that it's leading to a worn-out defense, which gives more scoring opportunities to our opponents. Now, we're sitting at 35%. That's a 35%, you know, as far as third down conversions. That's not a good, that's not a good place to be. I mean, you figure the Patriots are at 47.8, I believe, was the statistic. I think a lot of that is due to, A, the Bills' playmakers just not being healthy. I mean, we don't have any playmakers. Everyone's beat up, okay? But the Seahawks are right there with us at 37%, which isn't much better. So I have to ask, on third down, play calling, execution, injuries, which do you think plays a bigger role in your guys' struggles on third down? I'm, t- I'm tempted to say it's, Play calling. I mean, I, I don't. I'm the kind of guy who likes to jump down and throw the offensive coordinator. And it's again, like I mentioned, it's part of what I'm writing about this week. So there's so much that goes into it um, beside sort of what, what we assume. Um, although on third down, you know, you kind of really cut in leather where it's like you got to get the first down. There's nothing else to it. Uh, and Seattle, I guess, is behind been behind the, the down distance a lot, especially the last few weeks, and so it's been harder to convert those plays. Um, but there's no question they're failing. I think you know. It's a little bit injuries just because of the lack of Rawls, and they've had some guys go in and out on the offensive line as well. Um, but Russell Wilson's been struggling getting the ball out as quickly as he was to end last year. I mean, it's kind of famously uh, was throwing underneath two seconds in the last six or seven games in 2015. And partly because of his injuries, he's been required, you know, you'd almost think they would scheme to get the ball out quicker for him this year, but he hasn't quite done it. I've noticed in the last few weeks, he, he did a great job against the Jets in week four, um, but he hasn't been as successful lately. And I think that's got to be a scheme thing because we've seen enough from Russell Wilson over his now fifth year uh, that, you know, he makes good decisions. He should be able to, when he's given the opportunity, find an open receiver, but it doesn't seem like Seattle's offense coordinator, Devil Devil Bevel, has been scheming guys open in a quick capacity like that. I don't know. I understand why they got Jimmy Graham. They've got guys that the ball in the spot. I don't just run slants again and again and again. Um, You know, and I realize defenses are trying to take that out of their arsenal, um, but I was surprised against New Orleans. They didn't find more luck kind of spreading things out and just throwing at the sticks as often as they could. Uh, you mentioned how Buffalo should be able to take away Seattle's weak running attack, but 
I feel like New England definitely presented a template last week uh, by just kind of throwing for first downs. I think they were thriving on third downs, uh, nine out of 13, four out of four in the opening drive, and they mostly did it with the passing. They had zero in the first half and two <clears throat> the whole game got on the ground. And so even though we saw you guys struggle against Miami's rushing attack, um, New England was really able to kind of use pinpoint passing and some midfield or mid- mid-level passing to sort of move the chains without trying to kind of run it aggressively. And so, you know, the Bills, it's funny, I've been watching the film myself, and even um, Dan Fouts pointed this out in the broadcast last week. Uh, he quoted Brady as saying something like the, the Bills' defense and any Rex Ryan's defense uses so many different looks, it's kind of like spinning the dial. You never really know what you're going to see, so it's hard to game plan for it because one week they may come out a really blitz-heavy package or lots of different things, and next week it's different. So I'm not sure how much you can gain from one game. Um, but, you know, certainly the, the last two weeks we've seen teams use very different tactics to try to defeat Buffalo. Oh, 100%. I'll tell you, I mean, the, the blueprint is out there. If you want to – it's on our defense and personnel to step up their play. I mean, when you're talking about a Rex Ryan defense, and again, we talked about it earlier in the show, when you're talking about a Rex Ryan defense, your defense is predicated on cornerbacks on the outside that can win their matchups consistently. What we're seeing is that we, you know, because that kind of forces the play inside, which helps your safeties right. kind of keep some contain on it. So it makes you kind of stand in the pocket and wait for that dink and dunk passing, whereas we can get our pass rush going, you know, we, or we can get linebackers and safeties in there to try to confuse you, give you different looks, and try to get takeaways. Our cornerbacks on the outside played phenomenal last year, and this year we've seen a significant drop off in their play. So that's, I think, resulted in a lot of what you've been seeing. And so you're right. You know, if you guys decide to come out spread formations and throwing, that's going to present a big challenge for the Buffalo Bills. But you got to have someone throwing them the ball. And I got a, I, the, the last big question mark I have on offense for you. Russell Wilson's health, okay? He's playing through just a multitude of injuries right now. I, I don't know how he got you to a winning record at this point. Left ankle sprain, high ankle sprain. Right MCL sprain and a right pectoral strain. Okay. Now, just from watching the film and from looking at the stats, this is what I see. Your offensive production has definitely been hurt by this because he's a runner. You know what I mean? He's a runner at the quarterback position. He hasn't been able to, he doesn't have that burst anymore and he doesn't want to take off because he doesn't want to expose himself to more contact. The team is averaging 3.24 yards a carry since he started getting injured, which is 30th in the NFL. Over that time span. 29th in points per game at 18.7. The Seahawks are 17th in passing plays over 20 yards. But you guys were fourth last year. You know what I mean? You were fourth in the entire league in plays of more than 20 yards. Or passing plays of more than 20 yards. Right. And then last week, you guys only took one pass of more than 20 yards. That's the one that stuck out to me. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. I, I was going to say that's the one that stuck out to me when I saw that last week he only took one shot downfield. Yeah, no doubt. I think last year I think there were sixty. What they call it? Uh, I looked some, somewhere this week. There were sixty explosive plays in the passing game last year, mm-hmm. and I don't know what the total is this year, but we certainly haven't seen it. Um, it's strange. Seattle used to only really go pass heavy when they were facing you know, a lot of pressure, which is somewhat um, contradictory, you think. But I think mm-hmm. it was a way for Seattle to try to beat that blitz. And uh, mm-hmm. and they did that against the Dolphins, and then Russell Wilson got hurt, and they tried it, you know, to different degrees against 
Los Angeles, but at that time it was kind of at the peak of hobbled Russell Wilson, and then he hurt his knee again in San Francisco. But then mm-hmm. he, he was able to kind of sort of like dime pass his way to victory against the New York Jets in week four. And so everyone kind of was like, oh, Russell Wilson's an MVP candidate again. He'll be fine. He's shown that he can just stand there in the pocket. Um, and obviously we saw something different against Arizona. I think that the, 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 the scheme that you described as far as just like coming right up the edge uh, to the strength of your team is what Arizona did spectacularly uh, in order to not just keep Russell Wilson in the pocket, but to harass him from the pocket so that he wasn't able to find receivers uh, although I think that Arizona's defensive backs are probably a little bit uh, tighter coverage these days, just judging from what I've seen in the last few weeks. I would um, agree. <laughs> but, you know, Russell Wilson is definitely not comfortable. Um, he's, he's he, you know, he's, I think last week would have gone a lot differently if he hadn't had that um, the pec injury. They limited his opportunity to throw. They weren't throwing deep at all. They, you know, they weren't really throwing mid-level at all. And yet he also, they didn't seem to be scheming him ways to get short passes to gain, you know, second and thirds and short. So it's a, kind of a fundamental breakdown. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, when we've seen Russell Wilson, when he's able to stand there, if they're able to get guys open, Jimmy Graham gives him that outlet, and Doug Baltman can be that guy on third down. But he's able to find receivers even without his added threat of the run. There's no question that that's, with the fact that he doesn't add that extra dimension and the fact that more importantly probably – combination of his lack of mobility and the fact that they're just ordinary running game hasn't produced a threat to cause defenses to draw guys into the box. It allows teams to scheme around that so that while Russell Wilson's capable of standing around and throwing passes like a Tom Brady, maybe not at that level, but in that sort of mold, he has the quickness of mind and, and the quickness of arm to do that. I think that with his physical restraints, it'll freeze teams to defend him a little bit differently. And you're right. I mean, that's definitely the problem with the Seahawks offense for the first eight weeks of the season. We'll see if they can hold on and kind of get him healthier where they can get some of the uh, offensive line a little bit more experience and get the running game going a little bit better. All right. Well, I mean, I'll be honest. I think that now when I look at that, I see, okay, they've got a, they've got a, an offensive line that's been pass protecting better. You know, you guys aren't, you guys are doing pretty well as far as sack metrics go. You're not letting up a ton of them. So, there's still I, pressure, though, yeah. There's still pressure. And so I look at what we bring on the defensive line, and I look at what a Rex Ryan defense is capable of bringing, and I see that well, one of the things that got us beat against Tom Brady that you kind of alluded to, you know, Tom Brady was talking about, you know, no pressure, you know, he kind of did what he wanted. Well, we didn't bring any A-gap pressure. And everyone knows the book on Brady. If you can put pressure in his face, it makes it more difficult for him to do his job. This game, our pressure got from our D-line got washed out, and we ended up putting our linebackers, instead of blitzing, we kind of put them out in space, and it resulted in what you saw. Considering we're just coming off that and that that plan, because Rex Ryan in his post-game press conferences admitted that his defensive planning backfired, you know, that the team's planning backfired and that they're going to do something about it. So what I expect to see coming this week is a pressure-heavy package against a quarterback who is known for his scrambling, but right now because of his knee and ankle injuries and everything else he has going on, may not be the best candidate to be running around out there taking hits. And like I said, we've got the number four, you know, as far as pass, as far as pressure in the league, we've got Jerry Hughes. Shaq Lawson looked good. You know, Shaq Lawson is a rookie. He got a sack. He had some pressures his own, you know, on his own. You know, we've got Marcel Darius back in the lineup who's, you know, he's got the first game under his belt. He's going to be a little bit more explosive. You know, Kyle Williams, for as old as he is, I don't know how he keeps showing up game after game after game, but he does. 
I think that our defensive line alone, if you can, they're going to give your offensive line fits. If they if they mix in a blitz package with that, it may disrupt a lot of that passing and that timing stuff that you guys want to do on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, Bevel's rolled out a lot of that. Like you said, if they can get him in a position where he can get those quick passes, then it works. But if it doesn't and we bring pressure, I don't know. I feel like that's a good match. I think that's a matchup that kind of favors Buffalo. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I want to ask you about Lawson. I mean, he really got, you know, he played against Miami a little bit, but, you know, he, he, he was like, I think, 14 snaps, and he certainly played a lot more of a role against the Patriots. Do you, is that going to be where he's at most of the rest of this year, about kind of a little bit of situational rusher playing about mm-hmm. half the time, or do you think he's going to keep upping snaps now that he's healthy? Well, unfortunately, because last week during our podcast, I proclaimed that it was a stupid move for Rex Ryan to be playing Lorenzo Alexander on special teams because he's our most productive pass rusher. Why would you jeopardize someone who's so important to our scheme on special teams? I said it. And it was almost like I friggin' jinxed us because in this game on special teams, he pulled his hamstring trying to cover a punt. So he, Shaq Lawson, whether he's ready or not, is going to have to go. You know, it's going to be his time. I, I think, if anything, because Alexander still says he's going to play. I, I haven't checked the injury designation. I didn't have time to check it before it came on here on the air. But I believe that you're going to see almost a 50-50 split, if not a 75-25 split. I think they're going to get Shaq Lawson some reps because I think he looked good. I, he was one of the few bright spots for me last week was watching Shaq Lawson play. So then I got well, one challenge more. for Seattle. Like I said, uh, you know, Arizona was able to use that edge pressure um, to, to really disrupt Seattle's plans. Mm-hmm. You know, if I were Seattle's coordinator, I would try to use, you know, it's, it's, it looks it looks vulnerable because if you spread guys out too much, you're just, you've got no tight ends or, or, or slot guys to kind of disrupt that edge action. But I think if you, you know, I saw the, the Patriots do this against, uh, the Bills, where they went five wide on the thing, the first touchdown drive was third and nine. For some reason, Ryan decided to to send only three rushers and try to cover the five wide with eight guys, even though it was goal line situation. It wasn't like they had to defend the whole field. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I'm definitely concerned that he adjusts like you suggested and sends more guys through the center. But if you can spread guys out, um, I think that'll give Seattle an opportunity to neutralize that. They weren't doing it against Arizona, I think, because they were, like you say, just so afraid of. Marcus Golden and uh, Chandler Jones coming off the edges. Um, but, you know, again, like the antidote to that is try to establish a run game. So you got to mm-hmm. give those guys on the edges a little mm-hmm. bit more pause. And uh, in Seattle, if there's been a strength in this run blocking, it's been the center, you know, kind of the middle guys, the, the left guard, Mark Lewinsky, who's kind of, who was a second year guy. He's not heralded, but he's solid in the run game. Their center, Justin Britt, has kind of marveled after disappointing at both guard and tackle the last few years. And in the first-round draft pick, Jermaine Fetty is playing right guard. So if they can get a little bit of action up the middle, um, I think that will kind of open up some some hesitation on those head rushes and, and potentially save uh, Russell Wilson. But I think you're right. I think, you know, there's certain, there's no doubt the weakness in the Seattle team is its offense right now. And if Buffalo can kind of overwhelm them, then they'll have a chance in this game. I think the difference than what we saw last week is that Right now, it doesn't look like Buffalo's offense is the same kind of potency that New Orleans has had. And uh, Seattle still had a drive to try to, to win that game. <clears throat> so uh, I, I'm not going to you know, hand the ball <laughs> over to, to the Buffalo Bills just yet. No, I, I don't blame you. So two quick questions before we move on. Biggest, what, what right now is your biggest offensive weapon? 
And who is one guy, underrated offensive player, that the Bills fans probably should know about that they don't know about right now? Well, the best offensive weapon is probably Jimmy Graham at this point. Um, I think a lot of – I'm not sure what the fans from the national point of view have heard or, or, or noticed, um, but I know there was a lot of attention last year on uh, Jimmy Graham – was disabled in the offense. He wasn't able to be his usual explosive self. He wasn't getting the number, the volume of uh, targets that he got in New Orleans. And well, some of that's a little bit true. He definitely took some time to adjust. Um, you know, by the by the by the time he got hurt last year, he was more or less on pace if you look at his yards per target to match whatever he was doing in New Orleans. Even though he was never going to get the same number of targets per game, it just didn't mm-hmm. fit the Seattle's game plan. And this year, in, in kind of a surprising mode, because he came back so quickly from the patellar tendon injury that sidelined. For example, Victor Cruz for almost two years, Graham was able to come back in less than a year to be more or less full strength, at least by week three. And he threw up a couple hundred yard games in a row. Uh, he was definitely a key outlet. And some of those last minute drives that we've seen Seattle have a little bit more success when they're throwing more aggressively uh, in both of the last two games, as well as earlier in the season against the Dolphins and, and the Rams. So I think Graham is the most explosive weapon at this point, although never kind of write out Doug Baldwin. He's been so reliable for Seattle over the years. Whoa, 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 whoa. Doug Baldwin. Doug Baldwin has single-handedly screwed me in fantasy football because I'll tell you what. Last year he saved my team, so I took him again, and I thought I stole him. I thought I stole him in, like, the sixth round, and I could have had Greg Olson, and now I'm looking at I'm looking at Doug Baldwin going, what the hell, man? Come on. I mean, I mean, we were well, – Celeste just – Hang on, Celeste, think, before uh, you get going, you know, Celeste just looked at me. If Russell Wilson's able going to find a way to kind of – uh, beat the rush, it's going to be relying on Baldwin in the combination with Graham. And I think that last year when Seattle lost both its running backs and was still having troubles off the top of the line, Seattle used Baldwin as his security blanket. And that was when and Graham went out as well. So he didn't have defenses keying on this with the guy. And Baldwin was still able to beat coverage and score a lot of touchdowns late in the year. So even though it hasn't happened on a week-by-week basis, we've seen at least two games, I think, where Baldwin's been over 150 yards. And I think that if Seattle goes back to the bricks and has to just straight find a way to win and, and scheme their way to some more aggression early in games rather than trying to wait till last ditch effort. Then I think Baldwin can reap some of those rewards. Um, so I wouldn't drop him from your fantasy team just yet. Um, <laughs> but I still think for right now, Graham has emerged to be the top weapon. As far as an, an underrated offensive player, I think we might see some action from Nick Bennett, who's a backup tight end. Our usual backup, Luke Wilson, uh, oh, I'm an SEC guy. Kid. I know Nick Vanette. I know Nick oh, Vanette. Okay. I'm, I'm an SEC <laughs> guy. I know all about it. Yeah. Well, so I think that, um, you know, a Seattle could try to use a couple double tight formations to protect against those edge threats that you're looking for, but then sort of building off of that, um, try to throw some play action pass if they're able to get a little bit of protection from time to time. Jimmy Graham can you know, be used as a decoy before in Seattle's system, and that would leave uh, some targets for Vanette. He's, he's another guy like ProSize. A lot of their rookie class, which is very promising after the draft this year, a lot of Seattle fans were really kind of relying on rookie class to be what set them over the edge after the last two years' disappointments of not winning the Super Bowl as something that brought them back into contention for that title. Um, and most of their guys have been on the disabled list or, or uh, hurt or more, you know, suffering more injuries than, than was anticipated coming into the year, um, including Crosace, but also Vanette was out with a high ankle sprain. And uh, he's been able to get in action with Luke Wilson having an MCL injury and, and his own health recovering. So he worked his way. He had a huge drop against the Cardinals that kind of took the ball out of his hand. It seems like the coaches were concerned to go to him. 
the rest of that game. But he picked up a few passes last week against New Orleans, and I could see that ramping up as things go on. So I think Vanette, you know, might be a surprise player. I don't know how, how familiar uh, Bills fans are with guys like Tyler Lockett or some of the other backup receivers on mm-hmm. Seattle, but I think Vanette might be more of a sleeper in that respect. All right. Well, I got to admit, the reason why I spent a lot of our time together talking about the offense is because your defense, I mean, there's not really a whole lot to talk about. You guys are the, I don't want to say the same old, but you're the quintessential uh, Seattle Seahawks defense. I mean, run, I'm going to run down the statistics for you. The Seattle Seahawks right now are second in scoring defense. They're only letting up 15.6 points per game, which is absurd. I, I don't understand. When I saw the game tied at 6-6, like, how the hell does that happen? Then we're talking about third in yards allowed. Then nine total touchdowns, five passing, four rushing. Your team has only allowed nine touchdowns the whole season. I mean, it's incredible just to see, like, how do you hold someone, how do you hold, what, eight weeks worth of football? You've played eight teams, or have you played seven teams? Did you get a bye week? Yeah, I've played seven. Okay, so seven teams, and you held them under to, all to single-digit touchdowns, and some of them none touchdowns. I mean, that's incredible. And then you're in the top ten for passing and rushing yards allowed per game. I mean, we all know about your players. We know you're Richard Sherman. We know that you have two disgusting safeties who, I'm not going to lie to you, I thought it was a travesty, an absolute travesty that Jarius Bird got paid what he did. Because in my head, I was like, Cam Chancellor is way better of a safety. If I'm going to pay $9 million for a safety, I want Cam Chancellor. I'm not paying undersized Jarius Bird who maybe gets an interception every now and again. I mean, your defense is as good as advertised this season, which scares the hell out of me considering how poor our offense is. Yeah, I think it, I think it should scare you. I mean, Seattle, like you pointed out, you know, in addition to those traditional metrics, I think they're top five in both, both uh, rushing and passing defensive DVOA by football outsiders. Um, they're, you know, a lot of people associate Seattle with the, the Legion of Boom, the kind of the, the really dingy cornerbacks and safeties like you mentioned, um, but kind of the secret sauce to Seattle's defense is how good it is in rush defense. Um, they've got you know, some real big guys in the middle there. You know, they lost uh, the top of Ruben. I'm sorry, they, they lost uh, – um, uh, I'm breaking on the guy's name, but uh, they lost one of their, their longtime defenders to San Diego in free agency, but then they picked up Jaron Reed in the draft. They got a top of Ruben from Cleveland last year, and he's been a real stout. Um, they picked up – Salver Saliga, who was a guy who was on the Patriots for a few years, he's a guy who's almost as wide as he is tall. He's just really stout, kind of backup uh, interior defensive lineman. And then Tony McDaniel came out of retirement, uh, sort of at the end of training camp, to fill a spot for them. And he was a guy who was on the Super Bowl team in 2013 and been there for a couple years. And so they're, the middle of their defensive uh, line is really great. And then, you know, a lot of their edge rushers, the guys like Michael Bennett, Cliff Averill, and Frank Clark, are also really stout against the run, you know, if it comes to that. They're really versatile defensive linemen. And so Seattle's kind of formula, as much as people associate them with Pete Carroll and the sort of defensive back mentality, is really about making a team one-dimensional by stopping the run and forcing them to try to pass. And that, of course, plays into their hands because they've got such excellent pass defenders as well. Um, now, I mean, that's uh, going to be a challenge as we get, you know, there's no question if there's one unit on Buffalo that has an outstanding year. It's been the running game. Um, Y'all are five and a half yards per carry, which is more than a half yard better than 
anyone in the league, uh, you know, but we haven't quite turned that into wins. I mean, last week it was six and a half, I think, against New England, and yet they weren't able to convert those into a lot of third downs. And so I think Seattle was able to do that, kind of absorb some rushes, stop a lot of runs, and then kind of force people into third and longs. And I think when uh, Tyler Taylor drops back to pass on Monday, it's going to be in Seattle's advantage. Taylor, I- I'm actually a fan of his. I, I really enjoyed watching him last year. Um, you know, he's certainly got a lot of Russell Wilson in him as far as his elusiveness. But, man, I mean, he's been inaccurate the last couple of weeks. He, he was 50% against New England. He was 50% uh, we, against Miami. Oh, oh we know. He, he's, I think it's sort of, yeah, I'm sure. So and I'm just going to run it down for you to try to highlight this. And it's really oh, yeah. In the last four games, he's only at 53.5% of his passes. And on the season, he's averaging 185 yards throwing a game. I mean, Russell Wilson is sort of the comp to Taylor. Russell Wilson isn't as, as mobile right now because of his injuries. But if you look throughout his career, just from throwing, Wilson hasn't had a streak of that low efficiency ever. And he hasn't been so mm-hmm. unproductive in terms of raw yardage since the first half of his rookie year or eight-game sample. Like well, I'll be honest. That's um, why I get angry when people tell me, oh, no, he could be a Russell Wilson-type quarterback. If he was a Russell Wilson-type quarterback, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to watch the statistic that he's never thrown a 300-yard game. Don't blame it on his <laughs> yeah. lack of talent because, I'll be honest, Seattle doesn't have world beaters at wide receiver. You know, and yet he's found ways to generate yards through the air. I mean, he's a, he's a good quarterback. And I think that the Buffalo Bills will forever lament the decision to trade up to get T.J. Graham when we could have had Russell Wilson. <laughs> I feel like Bills well, every, forever will Every team in the league can, can regret that choice. Well, yeah, because everyone passed on him twice. Now, you yeah. said something. You said something just now. To, well, two things. One, I'm a huge Alabama fan. And I don't know if I don't know if we told you before we started recording, but we had a we have the Buffalo Bills long snapper off their practice squad, uh, Reed Ferguson. He was actually just here about ten feet away from me. <laughs> he was standing okay. about ten feet away from me. He plays for LSU. I try not to be too pro Bama in front of him yet because he's coming over to my house to watch the LSU Alabama game on Saturday. I wanted to kind of ease him into it just so he doesn't know how rabid I am. Jaron Reed, when you guys got him, I knew you were getting a steal. He is a man playing with boys at this point in his career. I don't know what he's going to be in three years when he's had a chance to get to bulk up even more and to get more, you know, kind of find out that the finer nuances of playing defensive line in football. Jaron Reed is a guy who terrifies me in this game because I can see him mauling Eric Wood. I can see it happening. He's an extremely physical player. He plays with he, – he's not a pass rusher. You're not going to get a lot in the way of pass rush out of him. But his explosion in the running attack, like the way he can just anchor down and just blow – he, you know, offensive linemen try to blow off the ball and just try to knock him backwards, and it doesn't happen because he's just a big guy. He's mammoth. Yeah, those guys don't move. Seattle's front, I mean, Jeremy is definitely an illustration of it, and I think that we've all, in Seattle, we're very, uh, I think, grateful to, to find a guy like that in the second round. Most people had him as a, you know, top 15 pick, oh, yeah. perhaps. But, you know, the NFL, they don't value uh, run stumpers as highly as they have valued pass rushers in recent years. And I think Seattle has kind of cleaned up by targeting those guys because of the way that they try to defend teams, like I mentioned. Well, absolutely. So then the next question I have, 
Michael Bennett, now you talked about his injury. You know, you talked about him being an integral part of your defense, but he's out. He's out with an injury. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm looking at your roster as a whole. You have a defensive end in Cliff Averill. Okay, he's more of a pass rusher. He's not really big enough to play inside consistently. You've got a guy like uh, defensive tackle Frank Clark. He's a solid all-around player, but he's got a much lower ceiling than anything Bennett brings to the table. So i got to ask, how is this going to affect the way you guys run your defensive scheme, not having Michael Bennett out there? Well, it certainly showed against New Orleans. I mean, the Saints have been one of the best teams at avoiding sacks all year. I think Breezes, you know, with the amount that he throws the ball, he's been sacked less than 10 times on the season. Um, Cliff Abel really has been on a tear lately, so, you know, I think you can count on him for a sack and a half, more or less a game, at least, you know, until he shows otherwise. But there's no doubt that Bennett's versatility going inside and outside um, was missing against New Orleans. And, you know, Seattle can try to get some of that back. They they, um, they use Cassius March, who's like a, I think a fourth year, third year kind of hybrid outside linebacker, defensive end. Um, and he rushes the passer sometimes, but he can also play in coverage. But he's not, you know, he's not a huge run stopper. I think he's like 240 pounds. So he doesn't have the same versatility inside. But they, they use him at defensive end when Bennett went out last week. And um, they tried to play. They kind of had a weird rotation at strong side outside linebacker this year. With uh, They didn't really highlight the position by letting Bruce Irvin go in free agency. And they've been kind of filling it with uh, replacement level guys. Um, and so Marsh has been there somewhat, but he's kind of played more of the defensive end spot. I think Frank Clark has kind of a, a more of a dynamic player than it sounded like you gave him credit for, but he certainly is focused on chasing the quarterback and it's not really a run stopper, but that's why they rely on their, their interior guys for that. I mean, the four, three front, you can do a lot of things. Bobby Wagner has been excellent at uh, running fills this season as well as like a gap blitzes. So, um, I mean, Seattle's got a lot of things they can do as far as, far as the front of its defense. Um, you know, KJ Wright cleans up a lot in the run game from the weak side, and he's also excellent in coverage. So, you know, the, the thing with Seattle is they've just they've got you know premier players at every level of the defense, even without and it definitely challenges their depth. But you know, especially attacking Buffalo's passing game. I don't see it really as a concern. Uh, Bennett, you know, is qualified as a run stopper, but you know, I think if, if anything, um, Seattle's got enough guys to sort of eat up the rush. Can I mean, speaking of injuries, do you know what LaShawn McCoy's status is coming into this game? I heard some people say that he's he was on schedule to come back. Nobody on the knows. Other hand, with, a bye, with a bye game coming up, why would you? Why would I'll you tell you exactly. Game? My thing was I didn't cut Mike Gillisley from any of my fantasy football teams because I honestly believe that it's a mistake to play LaShawn McCoy in this game. Well, and I'm probably one of the only. I'm not one of the only Bills fans, but I think a lot of Bills fans want him back ASAP. The fact is, is yes, this is an important game to our season, but you cannot jeopardize. If we lose this football game, if he plays and he re reaggravates that, it does us no. We, we don't get anything for it. You we know, have it a buy do after favors. the game. We have a buy after right. this. He could take those two weeks. Let's say we do lose the game without Lashawn McCoy in there. I don't want that, but what I do know is that we could hit the ground running healthy. I've heard rumors that they may be thinking about bringing Sammy Watkins back. So what I'm looking at now is do you want to go into the second half of your season when it's must win? Every game is must win. Do you want your playmakers to be healthy or do you want to gamble again and end up screwing yourself in the long run? I mean, it's really on our medical staff, who, as we talked about earlier in the show, are much maligned. 
These guys have made a lot of questionable calls that I'm not a fan of. So I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, I'd be shy. If they do dress him, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how many snaps they'll see. I don't know what it's going to come down to. Now, I got. Gillespie's been pretty solid when he's in there. I mean, he's leading all players who don't you know, meet the full qualifying for uh, full outsiders DVOA rankings, but he's leaving, leading all those guys, anybody with less than 60 carries uh, in DYIR and DVOA. He's at 62% DVOA, which is, you know, again, it's a small sample because uh, he's only got 34 carries, but that's an outstanding percentage. He's about 103 DVOA percentage points ahead of Thomas Rawls, who's at negative 43 on his 12 carries or something like that um, through the season. So, I mean, you all can roll with Gillespie. He's shown himself as a pretty dynamic back. In, 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 um, in the stead of McCoy, you know, you've got Reggie Bush, and then, um, you know, the, the, the offensive game plan with Taylor, you know, can spread out, you know, run opportunities for other guys in the option game and also just by making the defense try to cover that quarterback. So uh, if I was Buffalo, I'd definitely be pretty conservative about not wanting to ruin McCoy's season as long as y'all still have a chance for a wild card spot. Uh, I mean, Seattle's definitely established itself as, as very conservative as far as bringing guys along from injuries. Um, even when they were, you know, tentatively healthy, hamstrings are issues that can linger for four or five weeks, even if, even without playing on them. It's a strange kind of injury. It's not sort of, you know, hard tissue that can uh, uh, a clear timeline for recovery. So bringing a guy back from a hamstring too early can can yield, you know, uh, much longer recoveries. So if I was you, I would I would leave McCoy out this week. But I'm curious to see what happens. Oh, well, and you're right. It's we. It seems like we we don't have a ton of weapons, but maybe we have the horses to get by without LeSean McCoy. Now, I got one final question for you. One final question. We're going to wrap this whole thing up. Something I saw at last week's rushing defense for your from the Seattle Seahawks. You know, you, we've been talking about how stout you guys are and about how good you've been against this. The Saints aren't known for the rushing game. Yeah, that's just never been their thing. They broke the 100-yard mark against you guys, which is something that few teams have been able to do all season. They did it all, I'm saying all of it. <laughs> the, I, the majority of their yardage, over 80%, came off left tackle, left end, and left guard. i got to ask you two questions. Who plays on that side? And considering that that side of the line is our strength, that is our power running side. It's where we've got our you know, cornerstone left tackle. We've got Richie Incognito, who's played very well ever since he came, showed up here as a Buffalo Bill. In our center, we've gotten the majority of our production running behind that side of our line. You know, Do you think last week's performance is a fluke, or do you think it's something that the Bills, defense might be able, Bills offense might be able to exploit? Well, it's a possibility, if, especially as you mentioned that that's kind of the strength of where your kind of power lead blockers are. Uh, I think one thing that Seattle is scheduled to get back this week, they were missing the last three weeks is Cam Chancellor, um, you know, who you mentioned earlier is kind of your <laughs> mouth-watering mold of a, of a run-stopping safety. Um, they've had Kelsey McCray in there, who's a very solid player, especially in coverage. But he's not the run-stopper that Chancellor has been over his career. You know, and Chancellor's had a groin injury, and he's certainly not been quite as, uh, you know, overpowering the last two seasons as he's dealt with a couple of injuries. But, you know, with him, just in terms of his discipline and his focus on filling those run caps, that's really what's missing from that uh, that strong side of the defense. Um, and, you know, again, Bennett sometimes plays there. They move their uh, they move their defensive alignment around a lot, so it's not like one person's responsibility, the left end. But 
uh, you know, which is the right side of the defense. But again, I think the, the, the lack of, um, I guess, consistency at strong side linebacker has been, you know, they kind of try to cover that up with Chancellor and by using guys in nickel. But I think Chancellor's return will help, you know, as far as what happened against the Saints. Um, what remains to be seen if it's a fluke. I mean, it's only one data point at this point. Uh, I know there was one left side sweep that they kept trying it, New Orleans did, and it wasn't going anywhere, it wasn't going anywhere, and it finally broke through for like a 30 or 40 yard gain that helped set up one of New Orleans touchdowns. I mean, really the game winning touchdown when you do the math. And, uh, I've seen some people on Twitter kind of replaying that and showing a block in the back that wasn't called. And a lot of Seattle fans are whining about the referees in that game. And, you know, it was a huge disparity in calls. I mean, you guys have done calls go against you against the Patriots as well. So I think we're probably even on that accord, but I wouldn't blame the refs, but you know, it's just one, one run out of a, a bunch of them. I think apart mm-hmm. from that, you know, 40 yard, uh, sweep, the Saints weren't terribly successful, although you maybe could point out that comparable to their, you know, general aptitude as a running team compared to Seattle's quality of stopping the run. It also can be overlooked how worn out Seattle must have been after playing basically a five-quarter war against the Cardinals on Sunday Night Football and then coming back to fly across the country and start playing what's a 10 a.m. game for their body clocks. And I think, you know, they're going to have now eight days rest to come back and play on Monday night. So the the defense should be a little bit more rested than we saw against New Orleans. All right, Lars. Well, let me, let's do this. What are you, why don't you tell all of our listeners what you're working on this week and where they can go find it? Because it's going to be Bills related. Yeah, well, I've got a couple things that, like I mentioned, I'm working on the game preview. I have a game preview at fieldgoals.com and that's F-I-E-L-D-G-U-L-L-S. Not like the kicked field goal, but like more like a, a, sort of a hybrid football. Like a seagull. Like the Seahawks. That's fieldgoals.com. <laughs> so I'll have my game preview up, uh, previewing Monday night's game on Friday. Uh, I'm not sure when your podcast goes up, but. Oh, uh, we'll put it up tonight. Today. We go live tonight, brother. All right. So it'll be available on Friday. And then, um, tomorrow, hopefully, um, early in the morning, there'll be a piece kind of about how Seattle uses its offensive play calling sometimes to gain information from the defense rather than just looking for raw efficiency or volume stats. And that's one thing I think that I'm trying to kind of instruct Seattle fans who are, who are raving about firing Devil Bevel um, because of the poor, poor performance of the offense the last few games, kind of show why they've been struggling because of the third down inconsistencies, which goes back again to the coordinator's uh, responsibility to sort of actually win those battles mm-hmm. by scheming their way out of them. But they've been so limited in the first half of the last two games um, in their in their just volume of information they've been able to gain because they've had so few third down conversions that they haven't been able to like look, kind of find the um, looks that they're looking for and move the defense around with those plays and so we kind of try to get in the real nitty gritty of what goes on and off in the play climb besides just trying to gain yards and gain first down and score touchdowns um, so that piece should be going up tomorrow I got to finish it <laughs> those guys <laughs> all so, right man. Uh, well I'll tell and, you what you know and y'all can check me out all season long if you like what you heard the field goals is, is a kind of a, in addition to covering the Seahawks we try to give that sort of um, you know analytical and sort of insider's view of, of football and, and not just uh, like a hometown oh absolutely no it's one of the things I respect about you and that's why I reached out to you you know what I mean I, I want to get people on your no, A know what they're talking about but B I'm biased you know what I mean you're not a homer I know that I've read your work so I guess or Lars where can anybody get it to on Twitter uh, my Twitter is Beat Valley, B A T underscore Valley. Is that safe uh, by know the how bell? Old, how old your readers are, but or your listeners are, but uh, it's like if you ever watched Saved by the Valley, it's like Go <laughs> Beat Valley. 
All right, man. Well, Lars, it was fantastic having you on the show. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Folks, that was Lars Russell from FieldGulls.com. Guys, we've also had Celeste Elbone here in studio with us tonight. Celeste, how you how you feeling now that you sat in for a full rock power report? Come on now. For those of you who don't know, I'm she's, not a, she's a huge, <laughs> handsome enthusiast. Yeah. She's a huge fan of the year 1997. <laughs> 1999. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Celeste, I can't believe you listened to this. I was literally, I texted Drew that we were. I was going to put together a show intro for you, but I decided to go with a diversity clip, and I was going to ask you about your music uh, likings. So glad I didn't end up going that route and making a show intro with this garbage. <laughs> Whatever. So Celeste, did you have fun tonight? I did. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> Does Drew drink a lot? Um, yes. Wow, in one word, she's very succinct. Yeah, yeah you, had, I mean, you had nothing behind it. We're playing. We play Monday night, ESPN, Sean McDonough, John Gruden. On the call from ESPN. So if you want to know what team is playing locally in your area, you go to 506sports.com. We get uh, Jets and Dolphins. We have the Eagles and Giants. And then the late game, we get Green Bay and Indianapolis locally here in Buffalo. Go to 506sports to find out what's playing in your area if you don't have the ticket. Or just get the ticket like an adult. (laughs) Guys. I appreciate you hanging out with me. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. That's Celeste Bone. And this has been the Rock Power Report. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.